Picture it, New York City in the 1920s, and the tabloids are going wild over the salacious antics of a real estate developer by the name of Edward West Browning. Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. In his new book, Call Me Daddy, author Ben Feldman recounts a sensational tale from New York City's long-buried past. He joins us now in the studio to talk about it. Good morning, Ben. Hi, George. Now, I would think that few New Yorkers have ever heard the name Edward West Browning. Very, very few. Now, I lectured uh, last week at a at uh, to a group uh, uh, three days straight up in uh, Dutchess County, an adult camp of the uh, Workman's Circle, and the average age of my audience was average was about seventy five. So there were a few people in the audience who had heard Browning's name as children from their parents because this was a tabloid story in the mid nineteen twenties, and Browning and, and it was in the paper for months on end, several years in a row. And Browning died in nineteen thirty four, and there was a great deal of press. Uh, at the time of his death also. So people, it's within living memory now, but barely. When and how did you first hear of Browning? I heard about Daddy Browning uh, the same overnight night that I heard about Harvey Burdell, who's the subject of my first book, uh, Butchery on Bond Street. I uh, went to a concert, the uh, second annual Memorial Day recreation concert at Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn in the year 2000. And at intermission, I walked down a slope and went to the tent of the historic fund where Jeff Richman was selling his gorgeously illustrated history of the cemetery that had just been published a year and a half before. And I didn't know Jeff, and I'd never been to the cemetery before. But uh, it was a wonderful introduction. I took the book home. I stayed up all night reading the book. I finished it. I, I literally licked the words off the pages. And I found quite a few stories that fascinated me, too, above all the others fascinated me the most. And Browning is number two. I guess number one were the two folks included in Butchery on Bond That's Street. That's right. Burdell and Cunningham. That was a, a sad, tragic, horrible story. The, the Browning story is not quite as sad, not quite as tragic, and there's certainly no physical violence involved in it, and there's certainly no murder, but it's a it's sad in its own way. But it's 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 more of a moral tale, or maybe an immoral tale. We'll just point out in passing that Butchery on Bond Street is about the murder of a dentist in Manhattan. That's correct, and a dentist figures into Call Me Daddy also, uh, not insignificantly. How so? Um, Daddy Browning, Edward West Browning, was married for the first time at age 41 to a woman uh, approximately 18 years younger than he. And um, uh, he met her probably in the pews of the Manhattan Congregational Church on 76th Street and Broadway, where his parents belonged and he attended. He may have well been her Sunday school teacher. It just it just reeks of, of the Donald and Marla Maples, who I believe became well acquainted in the pews of Marble Collegiate. The couple married after a brief courtship. Uh, the young woman was raised from a life of uh, genteel poverty on the Upper West Side to an unbelievable spectrum of riches atop a penthouse across from the Museum of Natural History, etc. But she, uh, I think, fairly rapidly tired of the rather despotic nature of her lord and master, uh, Edward West Browning. And after a few years and after the couple had adopted two children, apparently they could not bear children naturally, uh, and strangely enough, uh, each of Edward and his wife Adele, Edward Browning and his wife Adele Owen, separately and singly adopted little girl. 
Adele's, although they all live together. Adele got tired of his uh, of his uh, his ways, I think, and she took up with a dentist. Uh, unfortunately, it was the family dentist, a man her age, uh, about twenty nine at the time, turned out a bisexual also. And she got gonorrhea. Yeah, she contracted a violent case of gonorrhea and was in the hospital at uh, a subsidiary of Roosevelt Hospital, the Sloan Hospital for Women, also on 59th Street in the 20s, was there seven weeks being treated for gonorrhea. And uh, And Browning knew. He didn't give it to her. He knew it. He went and got tested. If you look, I I did. I got a court order unsealing the divorce files. You need one if they're less than 100 years old in New York County. And I found that they existed. I had to have them. So I got a court order and I found wonderful things, including the photo that's on the cover of the book. I mean, it's just it's what Spencer Tracy referred to as churse. You know, but um, the pleadings demonstrate Browning went to two doctors to prove to the court when he started to divorce Adele that it wasn't he who had infected her. And she did something just unbelievable. She's laying in bed. She's laying in bed in, in the Sloan Hospital. It's February 1923, and Browning comes in with a sheaf of deeds, and he plunks them in front of her and says, you know, I want you to sign these things so that you don't have any you know, rights. I mean, he's, he was a wealthy, wealthy real estate investor by this time, a, a, quite a few million-dollar fortune, and very well-known around town as a publicity hand as well as an investor. She, she wouldn't sign the deeds, but she promised, according to his sworn testimony, she promised to never do it again, that she would be faithful, and etc. and you know what happened. Well, you actually don't know, because what did she do? She got out of the hospital. She did it again, and not only did she do it again, by June she'd taken back up with the same infected individual and started to see Dr. Charles. Charles Willen had been Wilensky, the son of a Delancey Street real estate tenement house operator. And they just kept carrying on. They rented a love apartment down on West 11th Street. The building's still there. And they hung out there. And, well, and, and on off nights, I guess, Dr. Willen went to a club, the papers say, uh, called The Jungle down in Greenwich Village where... Which one would only imagine what took place at the jungle. At the jungle, the police raided it one night, according to the Daily News, and they found many men in effeminate dress there and, and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's just, I don't know. Anyway, they got caught. They got caught uh, after they resumed Adele and Charles Willen. They got caught on an ocean liner. They took off in June of 23 for uh, France. And little did they know that while they were uh, snuggling uh, on, the, on, on the deck chairs that there was a, uh, a gumshoe who uh, uh, um, Edward Browning had hired to track them. And he tracked them off the boat at Cherbourg to Paris, around the hotels, and then the divorce started. In well, the, in that uh, divorce, summer. Browning acquired custody of one of their adopted daughters, Dorothy that, Sunshine. That's correct. That's correct. She is not the girl on the front cover. I was going to ask, who is the girl the, on the front cover? The girl cover? on the front cover is Marjorie Browning, who stayed with her mother by court order. And, who, uh, and, and Adele got a settlement from Browning, not a huge one, but I know she did okay because when you go into the archives and you get the passenger ship records, the sailings and the, I even have the ships they sailed on the pictures of them. Adele uh, Browning and Marjorie Browning were sailing all over uh, the Atlantic and the Caribbean in the middle of the Depression on these cruise liners. So they had to have some money. I mean, she had no employable skills that I know of. So uh, she must have settled with Browning. It was all signed up in France, actually. I don't know why. Well, Browning didn't want little Dorothy to grow up without a playmate. 
So he took some extreme measures to get her one, right? The guy was nuts. I mean, you have to, uh, I infer, I don't know, I have no you know, affidavits, but I gather Browning did not have uh, parenting skills to any great extent. I mean, Spock hadn't written his book yet, but uh, Edward West Browning didn't know what to do with children other than to spoil them with money and to court their favor. He was a child himself. So in April, I believe it was of 1924, he took out an ad in the Herald Tribune. You can read it. It's it's in the book. And, uh, and he advertises for a 14-year-old playmate for his adopt, nine-year-old adopted daughter. Uh, and he's seeking a, a girl who wants every luxury in life, will live a fine, you know, uh, a beautiful, rich existence and be a playmate and, and, and whatever. He doesn't even use the word governess. He wants to adopt a daughter. It's got to be a 14-year-old. and uh, Very specific. Very specific. And, and, and I don't know what his motivations were, but uh, District Attorney Richard Newcomb of Queens County and Bird Kohler, who was the Commissioner of Child Welfare for the city of New York, after whom the hospital is named on Roosevelt Island, took notice of the prece- what, happened, what transpired after this ad happened. Browning had a publicity agent, and the publicity agent made sure that the tabloid reporters and the photographers were outside his offices on 72nd Street and Broadway in the summer of 1924 as 12,000 12,000 girls showed up in the streets day after day after day were escorted into the office privately one on one sat on his lap see what pops up excuse my french and he interviewed all these girls Some, the mothers would wait outside even a few little boys rode in uh, what difference does it make? You're poor. You need some money. The guy was a well-known millionaire. He's a daddy, and he wants to adopt. People showed up. In August, he selects a bohemian girl, a Czech girl, who named Mary Louise Spass, S-P-A-S or A-A-S, depending on how you spell it, who claimed this Zoftig girl chestnut curls, quite a, quite a, a you know, built like a brick, you know what. Uh, there's pictures of her in the paper sitting in Browning's lap in the post with mailbags around them from the, the losing applicants. And he selects her. She claims to be 16. Okay, he's going to wink at the age difference. She claimed to have walked all the way from Astoria over the Queensboro Bridge because she didn't have the two-cent car fare all the way to West 72nd and Broadway. She claimed to be a penniless orphan, although her clothing was not that of a penniless orphan. Browning just ate it all up. He believed everything. She was adopted in Queens County Surrogate's Court that week. Uh, but he, he found out pretty quickly that she was lying, right? You journalists. <laughs> <laughs> the, the tab reporters chased, they literally chased each other over the Queensboro Bridge to find out who this girl really was. And they found out, number one, uh, she wasn't 16. Number two, Damon Runyon actually put it ra- later that she had omitted her winters in counting her summers. That's how he <laughs> said it. She was 21. She lived with her parents on Wilson Avenue, that's now 25th Avenue, in a building that you can see a picture of in the book. And she wasn't penniless. Her father had an interest in the building. He was also the super. And Did they know she did this? Uh, they absolutely knew she did this. Her mother was very, who didn't speak any English, her mother was uh, interviewed by some German reporters and uh, German language reporters. And, and they found out that Mary Louise was a bit of a uh, rapscallion and had been sneaking over to the, uh, to the movie studios, to the Kaufman of Storia studios to try to get bit parts. And the mother was not pleased with an aspiring uh, movie actress in the family and said, you know, so, you know this is a rebellious girl and a lot of boys were after her and whatever. She's a, you know, a, 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 
early pubescent girl uh, and uh, to uh, get adopted by a multimillionaire was fine with the parents. They absolutely were in favor of it. And when Browning, Browning had the adoption annulled a week later, he was scandalized by all this, or so he said. This is a fellow who liked to be swindled in these sort of emotional situations and make a big deal out of being morose, right in the front pages, the papers. And he paid uh, uh, um, Mary Lou Spass's parents $1,000, 500 apiece, actually, again, I don't know why, 500 each parent, to take care of Mary Louise's tubercular sister who was in a sanitarium in Denver. And that was the end of the adoption and the end of the story there, although she did sue him later. For what? Um assault at a hotel apparently he assaulted her one night at the queen's uh, or so she alleged at the uh, at, at the Kew Gardens hotel in queens to which he returned later we'll get to that this is a fellow who had a severe acute case of deja vu he was he he liked to go back and do things over and over again till he got them really wrong it seems like he certainly had a penchant for young girls because after all of this then he decided to sponsor high school sorority dances, but only if he could go to the dances would he put up the money for them. This was his sine qua non. He would draft the legal charters, buy the sweaters, the pins, etc., and he provided funds to, among other clubs, one uh, Phi Lambda Taw, uh, which uh, PLT, which he is quoted in the papers as having thought that it stood for pretty little things. <laughs> and Browning, Browning succeeded in, in get sponsoring this sorority. They had a dance at the McAlpin Hotel in March of 20, uh, it, it would be March of 26, I believe it is now. And he met at the McAlpin Ballroom. We all know the McAlpin. It's still there in 34th and Broadway where the chock full of nuts used to be. And the gap has been there now for a couple of decades. But McAlpin had an ornate ballroom. The high school girls like to ape their older sisters and perhaps their mothers with the bathtub gin and the flapper parties and the dresses and everything. They had a dance, and Browning uh, came down town uh, in his peacock blue rented chauffeured Rolls Royce, went upstairs and met a crasher, a party crasher, at this ball of PLT, Francis Peaches Heenan. 15 real years old, including winters and summers, another quite zoftig, quite well-developed young girl who was there crashing the party, a sometime uh, uh, student, a frequent truant from Textile High School, also a, a stage aspirant, also a clerk at Bedell's department store in Midtown. And he started to date her. Yeah, I know. He started to date her. He didn't see her as a playmate for his daughter. That's what he was looking for before. He saw her. He courted her. He absolutely courted her. He sent, and again, with her parents' uh, knowledge and consent, She, her parents were divorced. She lived with her mother, Carolyn Heenan, in uh, a six-story uh, uh, apartment building up in Washington Heights, right behind the armory that's still there now. The Iris Gardens is there between Fort Wash and Broadway. And he would send his uh, car up there to pick her up in the mornings. He was intent on her finishing her high school education. So she'd be chauffeured all the way down to West 18th Street in this Rolls Royce in the morning. You can imagine what her classmates thought of this. Her mother loved it. Her mother was divorced, had very little money. Peaches had been helping out with her department store clerk earnings. Peaches's father, Joe Heenan, or Bill Heenan, I mean, was a cop. The couple had separated. He was around, but he, and he knew about it. The mom was thrilled. 
money had shown up. Where the heck else was she going to get it? And the thing that really disturbs me, if anything disturbs me about this whole story, is what these mothers do with their daughters, be they little girls or be they teenage girls. They prostitute them in one sense or another. You know, they, Either they prostitute their appearance or they prostitute them literally. They sell them. Well, they lived in fancy hotels with Browning, they did. the mother and the daughter. They did. They did. Peaches, Peaches and Browning got married. And How old was Browning at this time? Browning, uh, when, when Peaches and Browning got married in April of 1926, Browning was 51 years 51, old. 51, she was 15. The relationship was legal back then? It was legal. It was legal. Certainly in Putnam County it was legal. It was probably legal in New York City, but Browning was slick. He'd had trouble with the DA and with uh, Bird Kohler when he was fooling around with Mary Spaz. Okay, and uh, but it turned out Peaches. Uh, it turned out Mary Spaz was twenty-one, so the DA and the commissioner dropped the case. So they'd been after him, and, and they couldn't do anything. You know, no harm, no foul, so to speak. But um, he wasn't going to mess with these people again. So when he popped the question to Peaches, and she and her mom and dad all said yes, he says, "You know, I'm not trying this in New York City. I'm not." The papers were, it was on the front page of the papers immediately. Even the proposal was. He hired himself up to Putnam County, where he and his first wife had owned property, and he rented a house in Cold Spring. It still stands on Paulding Avenue. It's a great house. I've been in it now. I have pictures of it on my website. And he established privately a, owned today. It's privately okay. owned today. It hasn't been made into National Historic Trust yet, property yet, but I'm, I'm pitching for it. You know, I got to call. Kirsten Gillibrand or something. And uh, it's in a very wealthy section of, of Cold Spring. And he installed, Browning installed Peaches and her mother in this house for uh, for a few days, got a lease, and went over to the uh, the town clerk's office over a plumber's shop in Cold Spring and got a license, got married the next day, April 10th of 1926. Hundreds of newspaper reporters were chasing around, coming up from the city on the two-lane roads to cover this situation. But Why did they care? Why did the media care about Browning and his shenanigans? You know, in Latin, I think they say mutatis mutandis, you know, only the necess- with only the necessary changes or nothing's new under the sun in a broad paraphrase. This guy liked to make a fool of himself. He bespoke uh, uh, the uh, fascination that America developed, and I don't think it was quite there in the same way before the Roaring Twenties. It's really a post-World War I phenomenon, but America fascination, obsession, uh, be it prurient or however you want to characterize it, in teenage girls' sexuality really started after World War I. It was all over the papers. And they were after Browning because there was a story there that America was interested in. Didn't we see the birth of the tabloid during this time? This is exactly when the Evening Graphic, the Morning Telegraph, the Mirror, they all got started in the early and mid-20s. I mean, the graphic, uh, 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 above all, went crazy with this story. Uh, putting together photo, they, they had an early version of Photoshop called the Cosmograph. And you know, they, they, they put together pictures of Browning and his uh, and his 15-year-old wife in their bedroom together with an African honking goose, which it was rumored had been invited into the marital boudoir and on and on. Peaches in a harem costume, uh, uh, Browning dressed as a combination of, of, of King Farouk and uh, Grandpa from Hee Haw. I mean, you just can't imagine what was printed. These are some of the allegations that came forth during the divorce proceedings, that's right? That's right. That's correct. How long were 
were they married? They were married. Well, they were, they lived together for six months after they were married. Not quite six months. Married April tenth of twenty six on October first of nineteen twenty six. Uh, storming out of the lobby of the Kew Gardens Hotel again, come peaches. Dressed in satin, in furs, and whatever, her mother right behind her, and a stream of footmen bearing trunks, all of which are piled into the Rolls Royce that's been left at Peach's disposal, containing all the finery that's been purchased at Bergdorf's, at Saks, at Bendel for tens of thousands of dollars of stuff. And they take off for parts unknown. So you're talking a marriage of four, uh, five months and 20 days. Uh, Browning wasn't going wasn't gonna to uh, sit around and get sued for divorce, though. Okay, he's going to take a preemptive strike, and where does he go to do this? You know, he's not going. He doesn't want the New York City courts. Back to Putnam County. Back to Putnam <laughs> County. The Scopes trial had uh, been carried on in Dayton, Tennessee, uh, in the summer of 1925. The Scopes trial. The Scopes trial, and the trial that ensued in little sleepy little Carmel, New York, was just as famous. Eighteen months later. Tens and tens and tens of telegraph and phone lines were strung into this sleepy little town. It's still a sleepy little town. Go there. The courthouse is the same courthouse with its big white pillars. Every hotel in town was filled. It was a circus outside the courtroom. And no less than Damon Runyon came to town to cover the trial with his brethren, the scribes, for the wire services. And the journalism is, is just unbelievable. Unbelievable. The divorce proceedings, though, weren't heard there. They were moved to White Plains, am I right? Part of them were heard there. Browning actually sued for separation. He didn't want to pay alimony. He didn't want a divorce settlement. So he just wanted a legal separation and not to have to pay Peaches a dime. He was perfectly happy to stay married. He didn't want to lose his fortune. Now, he had deeded all his real estate into a dummy company before he took out that marriage license, but he still didn't want to mess with lawyers. So he sued her for separation. She countersued for divorce. The plaintiff's case, Browning's case, was heard in Carmel, but Peaches's allegations were going, as everybody knew, to be salacious. This guy was a pervert. He was this. He was that. And the judge in Carmel decided at the behest of the local girls' religious seminary and the ladies' club that he would not permit this testimony to be heard in the sleepy uh, uh, white-glove town of Carmel, New York. So the trial was moved to White Plains, and the last few days of it were in early February of 1927. A mob scene outside. Snow on the steps of the courthouse on uh, Main Street. Uh, lots and lots of baby buggies on the courthouse step with babies inside them. No moms around. Left on the steps there, unattended. Mom sneaks in, as just like with the Burdell trial in my first, or the Burdell funeral in my first book. Who's attending these things when a guy is getting fried? And uh, the outcome of the the Browning trial we'll get to in a second. But when a guy's getting fried. Uh, who's who's going to be there to watch and, and to toast marshmallows in front of the fire? Of course, the the, the spectators are 80, 90 percent women who just want to get close to the flame while it uh, while it burns up here. They left their babies in carriages. It's right in the New York Post. Could you imagine that today? Uh-uh. No uh-uh. way. No how. Uh-uh. uh-uh. Well, the only place you see it is in uh, that I've seen it is in Hasidic neighborhoods. Their kids are left out on the street because it's safe. It's a, it's just a, that's a tangent. Anyway. So who prevailed in this divorce? Justice uh, Seeger took over the trial. The decision was reserved. And on April 15th, not uh, Browning's favorite day generally, tax day of 1927, he won one 
thousand percent of the case. Were there gasps? The unbelievable, unbelievable. I mean, people couldn't believe that this guy had gotten away with this, but he did. He did. Peaches continued to sue him year after year after year for what they call curtsy and courtesy and dower and all these inchoate marital rights. And she eventually got some money after he died, but not a huge fortune, not a huge fortune. You write in the book that to Edward West Browning, a relationship with a woman was no different than fancy-looking furniture. All right, all right. You bought it if you thought it was pretty. You used it till it wore out or it collapsed under your own weight. And that's what Browning did. But at the same time, it seems like the women got bored with him, got tired of him, too. Well, wouldn't you? I mean, this fellow, was a, he was a cretin. I mean, he was a creep. I mean, I just wonder, you know, you know, if you're in this business of taking down a wealthy man, of course you're going to get bored with it after a while. You're going to find him despicable. And uh, Browning was probably a despicable individual. But, you know, Mary Louise Spas, uh, uh, Peaches Heenan, we're not talking about Mother Teresa here. We're talking about uh, swindlers. We're talking about, uh, you know, girls. They were girls who wanted to take advantage of a guy, take him down. And they did. And they did. Did he bring shame to his family? Because he had a well-known family. They were... Big clothing makers, right? They were. Uh, one has to assume that he brought a great deal of shame to his family. He only had one sibling. Uh, I believe Lucy was her name. I don't recall. But, and his parents were both go- long gone by the time uh, all this scandal erupted. Uh, there was nothing to talk about until uh, the early 1920s. Uh, when the first marriage dissolved. So I don't know. The family firm went bankrupt in 1932 or 1933 anyway. And But, uh, I mean, Browning's middle name was shame. It was, it was wannabe, and it was shame. What he did with his estate is just another crazy, crazy story of a man who's— it's no coincidence that his family was mostly in the uniform business. He, wanted, he liked to try on uniforms, to play a role, father, adoptive parent, Parent, a knight on a white horse, Sir Lancelot, philanthropist. I mean, great at, great at trading property and building property. But he wasn't comfortable in his own skin. He had intellectual aspirations. He had social aspirations. He was a bodybuilder. He was a health food nut. You know, at the end, uh, none of it really paid off him. He died at... Uh, at uh, age 60 of uremic poisoning after a massive stroke a few months before. Tell us about this foundation foundation, that he created. This is not to be (laughs) believed. Well, we all know what the Nobel Prize was and and et cetera. But Browning, in 1915, right before he got married the first time, uh, uh, had his will done. And he left, in that will, he leaves his entire fortune to a newly created uh, foundation, which is to be uh, funded out of the proceeds of a testamentary trust a trust that's that's you know funded at, at his death and seven trustees were named in 1915 to be the trustees of this new foundation which was to award prizes in seven fields of human endeavor all described at great length there okay and the seven trustees uh five of them actually survived browning he died in 1934 as i said on october 12th uh and and, and five of the seven uh, survived him um none of them 
were personally acquainted with Browning, other than Reverend Henry Stimson, who was a very well-known Protestant cleric who had married Browning the first time. But men such as Nicholas Murray Butler, who was the president of Columbia University for many decades, the chancellor of City College, the president of NYU, several renowned physicians, they all resigned as soon as the will was read. They didn't want anything to do with this clown. They, they They didn't know him from... Adam, and they certainly didn't want to run his foundation. You know, it was a blot on anybody's name. So a title company was appointed instead, and uh, with the depression and etc., the, the the foundation's uh, assets were run into the ground. They there were no prizes awarded till 1971, because although he left his entire fortune to the trust, virtually to this new foundation, Browning reserved an income, a life estate in the income from the trust to little Dorothy Sunshine. And Dorothy Sunshine, his adopted daughter, uh, knew and quickly got lawyers to uh, get an injunction against distributing any prize money because if the prize money is supposed to come from the corpus, from the principal of the trust, and if the principal was going to be reduced by these prizes, she wasn't going to get as much income. So she blocked it until she died in 1971. And in the New York Times... If you go online, you can get the article in the archive, free, whatever. You can see in 1971 the article about the first prize awards. Ben Feldman, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you, George. Ben Feldman's new book is called Call Me Daddy, Babes and Bathos in Edward West Browning's Jazz Age New York. If you'd like to hear my interview with Ben on his first book, Butchery on Bond Street, you'll find it in the Cityscape Archives at WFUV.org. Here's a little taste of that interview. An upper-middle-class so-called sporting gentleman, uh, a well-respected scientific medical dentist, this man was found murdered, gruesomely murdered, in the sanctity of his own home in his second-floor dental clinic. That's one count that made this crime so famous. The New Yorkers in 1857 were very curious about this case. They gathered outside of 31 Bond Street where this murder took place. Just as we see in our times, when something crazy happens, uh, unless there's security reasons, people flock to the site. And the media just went wild with his story. They covered every salacious detail. Every single little detail. My full interview with Ben Feldman on his first book, Butchery on Bond Street, is from October 27, 2007. Again, you'll find that in the Cityscape Archives at WFUV.org. And that's it for this week's show. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend.